We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Linnell Morris-So, a licensed clinical social worker. She has worked for Kaiser Permanente for over 30 years, 22 of those years in the Vallejo Psychiatry Department. Throughout her career, Linnell has served on and later chaired the Northern California Region Psychiatry and Chemical Dependency Best Practice Committee for Intimate Partner Violence. She was a site director for the Vallejo Postmasters Fellowship Training Program from 2010 to 2017. Linnell currently serves as the co-chair of the Vallejo Psychiatry Diversity Committee. Linnell, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Linnell, can you please tell us a little bit more about your clinical background and about your clinical practice? I graduated from UC Berkeley as an undergrad with a degree in social welfare and then went back and did graduate work at UC Berkeley. I started at Kaiser in my second year of grad school as a as a pre-master's fellow at the Department of Psychiatry. And upon completing that program, Kaiser offered me a job and I just never left. That's great. They're, they're lucky to have you. Do you Thank mind you. telling us a bit about the, the kind of what your actual day-to-day work looks like and so we can paint a picture of that? Sure. I currently see mostly adults with a wide variety of emotional and mental health diagnoses. I see clients with depression, with anxiety, schizophrenia, trauma disorders like PTSD. I currently facilitate new moms group for moms that are struggling with postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. I facilitate a acceptance and commitment therapy group for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I am also certified in EMDR, the treatment for trauma, which stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Wow, that sounds like that should be a, a conversation all in and of itself about the eye movement um, disorder. It sounds like you have a really busy practice. Can you tell us how you've seen the COVID pandemic affect physicians and staff uh, that you work with and, and those who are around you? What I've seen is that the COVID pandemic, physicians and staff and nurses over in the medical center are very excited and happy to rush in and do what they were trained to do. They're, they're rushing in to do their jobs of taking care of critically ill patients. But there's this dilemma because in taking care of those critically ill patients, they're also worrying about getting the virus themselves and possibly transmitting it to their their loved ones. And so what I've seen is is a dilemma. It's it's a heightened amount of anxiety 
about doing the job that you were trained to do and the job that you love to do. Yes, and I've actually seen some of that very same thing amongst colleagues and and concern about, you know, for anybody who lives with multi-generation families about bringing that home, about how, you know, how much disinfecting they need to do at the end of work, how, how much risk they're actually exposing their loved ones to. So you hit on a really important point. Um, how are you seeing the, the physical, emotional, and financial stresses of this pandemic manifest in your clients and, and caregivers for patients? The physical stress, everyone comes home tireder these days. And if we're working from home, we're tireder. There's something about the intensity of the work that the caregivers in office, in clinic, at home are doing that just pulls a little more energy, a little more dedication, a little more of self out of it. And I think in part, because we as providers are also struggling with the same issues that the caregivers are struggling with that are also struggling with the same issues that the patients are struggling in. Right. Yes. There's a sense of this background anxiety that everyone's carrying with them, you know, the uncertainty around school for their children and uncertainty around, you know, when or shelter in place orders will be lifted. So there's this background and then coming in and, and the work is intense and your clients are anxious. It really does um, cause a sense of fatigue. So how are these stressors different than the stress, anxiety, and depression you would typically see prior to the pandemic? Well, prior to the pandemic, providers weren't necessarily anxious or worried or scared about contracting a virus that could potentially kill them or make a family member sick. So that's one way. But the other way is that we also weren't teachers. Um, and we are now if we have children, or we also weren't caring for a loved one that has autism whose day program has been closed. Uh, and we've suddenly had to learn a whole new set of tricks for taking care of that person or taking care of grandma with Alzheimer's who used to go to a, a special facility or class during the day specifically for Alzheimer's. So I think that the pressures of COVID and being shut in and having community agencies and facilities shut down is just having a a dire impact on family structure. And it's playing itself out physically. People aren't sleeping well. People have early morning insomnia, which denotes anxiety. People aren't eating well. And some of these homes, finances and resources have been lost due to businesses closing and so their homes with food insecurity can you really pay your rent can you pay your mortgage are you going to lose your house um kind of like the anxiety that was sort of seen when the market crashed before not necessarily food insecurity part of that there but definitely the mortgage crisis and am i going to lose my home where am I going to live? What am I going to do with my grandkids? What am I going to do with my grandmother? It's this compound stress that's being out in, in families and in caregivers right now. Yeah, that's actually a good term for it, the compound stress. And it's, it's really stress coming from multiple different angles and just being layered on and additional responsibilities. And 
um, you know, and, and every person's um, story is a little bit and sometimes dramatically different in terms of the stressors they're dealing with. Linnell, can you talk about strategies right. that can help help people cope with the difficult issues that have resulted from the pandemic? Um, I'm interested in hearing about strategies for healthcare professionals and also for individuals who aren't in healthcare. Some of the strategies are when we've experienced the trauma, there's this sense of lack of control or helplessness. And so if we're one of those people who are not working, then it's really important to put some structure in your day, some predictability back in your day. And that would mean setting an alarm clock and getting up and brushing your teeth and getting dressed and cooking breakfast and maybe going for a walk. Because um, structure helps predictability, which can lower anxiety. Other helpful strategies might be just to remember to exercise or to even download the, the premiumcom.com app that's available to all Kaiser members, including staff, or, or even to call psychiatry or behavioral medicine and maybe join one of the many virtual groups or classes that we're offering these days. It's, it's in the old days, pre-pandemic, people would walk in the clinic when they weren't so stressed and we could provide immediate access to groups and classes. And now it's being provided in a virtual world. And that can also impact people's ability to access services. Because if you're from a home where you don't have Wi-Fi or a or even a computer, you might not be able to to get access to some of those services. Right. And I'm sure you um, are talking to a lot of parents in your practice. And I'd like to kind of focus on this idea um, about structure that you just mentioned about people creating some structure in their lives. It becomes extra challenging when you have children who are at home and trying to do school through Zoom or whatever virtual platform they're doing. And they don't have, you know, they're not in school and they don't have that structure. What kind of advice are you giving to parents about how to create that structure for their children? First, you have to have a conversation with the, ch- with the child, assuming that, that, that it's not a kindergartner or a gardener through fourth grader. If they're a fifth or sixth grader, they have some opinions about how they want to spend their day. I have a seventh grader who's 13, and the thought of doing school at home from his desk was not high on his list which meant that I needed to pay attention to what his assignments were, that although he's responsible, I couldn't trust that he was actually going to follow through. So the school would send the parent information as well as the child information. And it, it helps to sort of negotiate a plan to actually have a schedule that you're going to get up at 8 a.m. and not sleep till noon to try and get through the work. We're going to eat breakfast like we always ate breakfast, and we're going to sit down and we're going to do that homework. And then we're going to move over after a break and look at your Spanish homework. And then we're going to look at your English language arts. So structure helps with kids because they, too, are feeling overwhelmed by this pandemic. It's a bit confusing and daunting. Even at 13, my kids still would love an opportunity to go run play basketball in the park with his friends. 
despite COVID, which is mind boggling to me, but that's what he would love to do if given an opportunity. And so they don't quite understand the, the, the magnitude of all that's happening. And so continuing conversations with them and negotiating a reasonable amount of time to spend on schoolwork and on screen time or whatever else it is that, that they want to do, because this is such a change for all of us. It really is. And it sounds like you're having some of the same approach and some of the same issues as we are with our teens and preteens in our household. Are, are you, what are you telling parents about the socializing for the for children and teens and, and you know, not exposing them to COVID, but making sure the socialization process can continue? That I've, we found that to be a real challenge. And it, it is a challenge. In particular, for younger kids, I have a dear friend who has a five-year-old who just started kindergarten, and she was so excited about being in school and not in preschool and her whole new friend circle. And then it just all went away. And she spent six weeks cooped up in the house with just her mom. And the child was losing her mind. The mom was losing her mind. I would call and check in on the little girl. Um, And I think a lot of other family members were calling to check in just to see what could be done, structure help. But at some point it became Zoom gatherings with the friends. It became bicycle riding with social distance with the friends. At this point in Alameda County, we're now allowed to have quarantine bubbles or, or health bubbles with people that that socially isolated and and that's worked out she now has science 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 Science, hello podcast fans want to get weird with us come check out the mad scientist podcast we are a weekly show that looks at the history philosophy and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions did the government really pay for a psychic spy program yes Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Two little friends that, that she gets to go and play with and that she can actually touch and hug. Um, for my 13-year-old son, it just so happens that his friends are in my social bubble because I'm really good friends with their parents. So for him, it works. He gets to see them when we go out for a walk, which is about all we've done is try to get in some exercise. Right. Yeah. It sounds, it, it's very interesting how kind of universal some of these challenges are. Linnell, it's been well documented that COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting people of color and their communities. Do you mind sharing your thoughts uh, on this? Yeah. It, I, I believe it's, it's well documented as well that, that it's, it's impacting community of color because a lot of times people from those communities are essential workers. They didn't realize they were essential workers. 
um, it, it, it was a shock that a bus driver was an essential worker, but it makes perfect sense. Um, we sort of knew that that some people were like the postal service, that, that those employees were essential workers or people working at the grocery store were essential workers. But I think that as an essential worker, we're out interacting the, the public and that puts us at a slightly higher risk of contracting the virus. We're doing work in the hospitals. A lot of essential workers, a lot of people of color work in, in hospitals and radiology and our nurses and doctors. And we're, we're interacting with the, the public and just putting us at a higher risk. Then you factor in histories of comorbid conditions like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, asthma, and it's just a situation. It's just the perfect storm for COVID to come in and and attack almost, um, which which is scary. And then you factor in the multi generational homes and great grandma is now sick or potentially sick because there is an essential worker. So I, I, in in communities of color, it's often hard to socially distance at home. And so I think that there are a lot of factors that contribute to an elevated rate of of contraction and difficulty in, in community color. Yes, you've hit on quite a few of them. And, you know, I would even add then you layer in inequities around access to health care. And we're seeing, you know, there's there's data coming out that um, there's disparities in terms of who's even being tested for COVID when they come in with similar symptoms. And so you just, it, it's just layer upon layer that that's clearly impacting this. How do you, when you, when you say, when you say inequities in healthcare, it's access to healthcare. It is definitely well documented that African-Americans and a lot of people of color do not seek treatment, do not go to ER until they're farther down the progression of the illness. So by the time we get to the ED, um, we're much sicker historically. We don't do a whole lot of intensive care in those communities because that would cost money and time. And right. so it, there are a lot of, of sociological and economic factors that, that play into why it is disproportionately hitting communities of color at a much higher rate um, with higher higher death outcomes. Yes. I was just reading a statistic earlier today that was talking about how Chicago African-Americans are 6% of the population. And, you know, their account or maybe it's 36% of the population. 32% of the population, and they're accounting for 70% of the COVID death. That's, that's huge. Yeah, that's disparities put in very clear numbers when, when you see something like that. How, how do you see um, this affecting people of color from a mental health standpoint? People of color don't always seek mental health services. They're layered on top of the multitude of reasons why we don't seek medical services is also this distrust of medicine and mental health. Growing up in the African-American community in church, I would hear often that we needed prayer, not Prozac. 
And in some Latino cultures, it's the attack of the nerves as opposed to anxiety or depression because it's not socially acceptable. And I think that that impacts one's desire to seek treatment and services. And so the same financial stressors just play themselves out again with people not sleeping, not eating, being more irritable and overwhelmed and not sort of knowing what to do to manage the situation or how to make it better, or even if you can make it better, which takes us right back to the trauma of COVID-19 and the trauma of everything that's happening nationally today um, and the need for structure. Right. And so I actually want to talk about what's happening nationally these last couple of weeks. Um, the protests stemming from the George Floyd murder and the renewed energy around the Black Lives Matter movement have intersected with the COVID pandemic. Can you share your thoughts about how the pandemic may have shaped the nation's reaction to George Floyd's murder? I think there'll be tons. I'm excited at the thought that there'll be tons of scholarly articles written at how George Floyd's murder caused a a national movement. Um, For me, I think that 400 years of oppression and brutality and violence against African-Americans and marginalized members of society or people of color have just led to a tipping point where people are tired and tired of being sick and tired. They're they're overwhelmed. Um, We've known that lynchings and murders occurred for years, for centuries in the African-American community at the hands of non-people of color. And to actually see it play out on TV or on YouTube just sort of puts it in your face in a much clearer way. We could use cognitive dissidence to rationalize some of the deaths we heard. Oh, Eric Gardner was fighting back. Oh, Rodney King did X, Y, and Z, and this is why they had to hit him and subsequently get acquitted. But with George Floyd, $20 worth of cigarettes just sort of seems kind of like not much. And yet he lost his life for that. And I think that people are overwhelmed and upset. And I think that that it is also given another segment of the population, the, the, the non-people of color segment of the population, the white segment of the population, an opportunity to sort of see it and realize it and own it and recognize that it's, it's not okay that people should have the same right to come back home when they leave home, whether they passed a fake bill or not. I, as a mom, shouldn't have to worry if my 13-year-old gets on the bus to go to school that he's actually going to come home or that the police are going to stop and say something to him. And literally, the police have stopped him when he was 10, living close enough to walk home from school they questioned him because of the neighborhood that we live in. And that shouldn't happen simply because of the color of his skin. Absolutely. Um, you've, you've stated that very, very eloquently. 
I want to ask one other question related to the intersection of the pandemic and the George Floyd murder and ask your thoughts around whether social distancing requirements and the social isolation that people have been feeling and the stresses of being, you know, in, in quarantine environment, whether that has affected the national response to the George Floyd murder? I think it's affected my response to the George Floyd murder. Any opportunity to get out of the house became a good opportunity to get out of the house. I, I, I think it's a lot. It, it's an act of, of civil disobedience. And I'm unclear on a national level if it is a result of George Floyd or a result of being trapped in the house or told to stay in the house or shelter in place for several months. Um, it, it, again, it was just the perfect storm for something to happen. We're sitting up watching this video over and over and over again. So it's seeping into the nation's subconscious in much the same way that it lives in the black subconscious. And, and we're trapped in the house and wait, somebody's walking down the street in front of us or next to us as we exercise with, with a protest sign. And by, by definition, a protest is an act of civil disobedience. So I don't have a home now. I can go stay in this protest or I can stay out. So I, I think there were many, there are many factors that have contributed to what we're seeing. And again, I, it makes me excited at the thought of going back to school in five years just to read the literature because it's, it's going to be really fascinating to hear sociologists and other departments explain it in a way that it makes it make sense. Right now, for me, it's kind of hard to add it all up and to make it all make clear sense because we're living through it or I'm living through it. But hindsight is going to be 2020 because we've seen this happen before. We've seen uprisings before when people of color get killed or at the hands of police. We've, we've seen it. We've seen the riots in L.A. and that didn't change anything. We, we've seen the riots after Eric Gardner or Tamir Rice or Breonna Taylor um, or even Ahmad very recently, we, we've seen the protest and it didn't feel like anything was going to change. And right now it feels hopeful that something is going to change. It feels hopeful that as a society, we might actually get some movement and get it right this time. I mean, the NFL is now inviting Colin Kaepernick back. I never thought that was going to happen. Yes, there's there's definitely some real reckoning going on, and a lot of us are hopeful that that the that the momentum will continue. Linnell, I want to ask, what kind of uh, emotional trauma or mental health concerns are you seeing amongst your clients as a result of these two events happening at the same time? People are struggling with: Do I protest? Or do I stay home? Do I protest and catch COVID? Do I not protest, have nothing change, and die at the hands of someone out in the community? It again is back to 400 years of history of violence against people of color. It, it's all re-traumatizing. It's sort of like as as a people, 
we walk around with chronic PTSD. And when something else happens, it just triggers us. And so you start being more hypervigilant about your child leaving the house or even you leaving the house. I've never been scared of the police. And a police car pulled up next to me two days ago. And I was like, oh, my gosh, wait, did I do something wrong? And that's never been my reaction. And so I think that it is it is triggering and it is causing people to feel more unsafe and more unsure and less confident in their actions and in what they're doing out in the world. Absolutely. Linnell, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. And, and I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast and on behalf of the audience, our audience for sharing your thoughts and insights and expertise. Uh, one thing that I've been asking each of the guests on the show with the idea that many small businesses and restaurants are having to close their doors and you know we're, we have 30 million Americans out of work and there's real financial pressure related to the pandemic is if there are any small businesses in the community where you live that you would like to give a shout out to with the hope that by mentioning them, we'll give, get them a little bit of extra business. So is there anybody, any business that you'd like to mention? Yes, I'd love to shout out my favorite Ethiopian restaurant, which is Cafe Calusi on Telegraph Ave in Oakland. Awesome. We will make sure that they get into the show notes for this podcast and and get a mention and we'll encourage any of our listeners in, in your area to go out and give them a little extra business. Uh, obviously, socially distanced, maybe takeout um, is the way to go still. Linnell, as I said, I want to thank you again for being on the podcast and wish you a uh, pleasant evening. Thank you. You too. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.